0: Our scripture lesson this morning is taken from Revelation chapter 14, the first five verses, and you'll find that on page 1928. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with him a hundred and forty-four thousand who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps, and they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women. For they themselves are pure. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They were purchased from among men and offered as firstfruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. The word of the Lord. May we pray. Lord, help me again to tie things together in this mysterious book that is so full of allusions to the whole of Scripture. We pray for that simplicity and gift of simplicity and clarity of explanation and practicality of application through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Now, you have a handout, and your handout is not like mine. It's like mine, except I have the red letter edition. And what I did was to go through uh, the Greek New Testament and I tried to identify every passage in the book of Revelation that had to do with worship. So things like the temple, things like the tent and the tabernacle, things like people blowing trumpets and incense and all these other things I highlighted in my red letter edition. And what I want to do with this is to say to you that the book of Revelation is a book of worship. And we often miss that. You know, we hear these prophecies, this is going to happen, that's going to happen. Joe Biden and Donald Trump are going to get into a duel together, and Nikki Haley is going to assassinate both of them with a sword that she inherited for her Hindu great-grandfather. And then we're going to I'm being absurd. The point is that many approaches to the book of Revelation are just that absurd. And they want to make the book of Revelation fit our times. The trouble is that the book of Revelation was written for people who were living in the first century before Christ. And it was designed to give comfort to those people in the middle of all the trials and tribulations that they faced. That doesn't exhaust its meaning because the book of Revelation prophecies recapitulate on and on throughout history, even as Old Testament prophecies had an initial fulfillment and recapitulate into our time. The greatest example of, of that, in my opinion, is the prophecy uh, that Isaiah has in Isaiah 7.14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. We know from the New Testament that refers to the Lord Jesus Christ. But what we discovered when we examined that passage uh, almost a year ago is that that was Isaiah's second wife who was a virgin when he married her. And And we can prove it conclusively if we examine Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 8. So the fulfillment of that prophecy of the virgin birth is initially about Isaiah's new virgin wife, because people in those days often had more than one wife. And uh, so anyhow, its initial fulfillment, Isaiah's virgin wife, but its ultimate fulfillment is the Lord Jesus Christ, who was conceived in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary and was born of Mary. And so that's, that's an interesting thing. And that just opens a can of worms that if you go back in my sermons, you can find where I put those worms back in the can. So so prophecies have an initial fulfillment, but then oftentimes they repeat and have an ultimate fulfillment. So looking at this in Revelation 14, what is the book of Revelation really about? The book of Revelation is really about how to worship. It's a worship book, and all you have to do is look at all those texts in the handout Uh, and I left the Greek there because it was just too too hard for me to remove the Greek, so excuse me, and also minus the red letter edition. But I think that's an important truth. So we looked in here at the 144,000. Who in the world are the 144,000? They're people who will knock on people's doors, particularly on Sunday mornings to catch them at home, and they will sell them literature like the Watchtower magazine. And in the early days of the Jehovah's Witnesses, they knew who the 144,000 were. But what happened is, all of those people are now dead (laughs) because that was so long ago. And so now the Jehovah's Witnesses don't uh, participate in the Lord's Supper, I believe, anymore because they just exhibit it because the 144,000 are all dead. Hmm. And then there are other people that take it at face value. Our translation leaves out something in verse 4. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure. That's not really what the Greek says. It says they're virgins. And so some people think that these are literally 144,000 Jewish men who have never had relations with a woman. And they go, well, this is what it clearly says. They're virgins. They've not defiled themselves with women. And so they look at it that way. I want to set forth for you a very different idea, and that is to understand in light of chapter 5, excuse me, in light of chapter, um, chapter 7, if we turn back there for a moment, Revelation chapter 7, and that's page 1920. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prepare, prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. But that's not true. (laughs) From all the tribes of Israel? If you go through it, there's a tribe missing. And the tribe that's missing is Dan. So people, you know, go to that. Well, the Antichrist must be a Jewish man from the tribe of Dan. I wonder if Benjamin Netanyahu is from the tribe of Dan. I don't know. It's really missing the point. The point is that this is arranged this way to give a very basic truth. Did Jacob have 12 sons? Yes. But you know that Reuben messed up, and so the blessings of the firstborn... Went to Joseph. And so uh, Jacob, before he dies, blesses the two sons of Joseph as if they are his own children, because the blessing of the firstborn in the Old Testament was a double portion. And so Ephraim and Manasseh are counted as sons of Joseph, I mean, sons of Jacob. And so if you go through, they're all there, but Dan's missing. Why is Dan missing? I have no idea. It is a literary device. What is the point here? The point is that there were 12 tribes of Israel and there were originally 12 apostles. And 12 times 12 is 144. And then 10 is the cube, excuse me, 1,000 is the cube of 10. So I believe, and I won't fight with people over it, uh, but But, I believe that one hundred and forty four thousand is a symbolic way of referring to all of god 's people in all ages, old testament believers, new testament believers all god 's people in all ages. So, if we look at this back at chapter fourteen, why are they called virgins? These people that have never had relations with somebody? No, we have to go back to the Old Testament. The great theme of the Old Testament is that Israel is the wife of the Lord. She's the Lord's wife. And so therefore you find this theme in the prophets, in Ezekiel, profoundly in Ezekiel 16 and Ezekiel 23, and in the whole book of Hosea where God instructed Hosea to marry a woman who was a prostitute. And God wanted Hosea to experience emotionally what God himself experienced when his people betrayed him and broke their trust, their covenant they entered into at Mount Sinai with the Lord. And so Hosea writes about that. And the redemption that's there. Because Hosea seizes his wife one day in the slave market being auctioned off to the highest bidder and he bids for her and he buys her back. So Hosea, that's that theme. So the virgins here, you see, it's simply a way of referring to God's people who are loyal to him, who keep their covenant with him, who are faithful to him. And so there are 144,000. That's the square of the New Testament Leadership and the Old Testament leadership with a 1,000, which is the cube. And that's a picture of the temple. Have you ever thought about it? Do you know that in the tabernacle, the tabernacle had in the Holy of Holies, it was a cube, 10 by 10 by 10 cubits. A cubit is what? It varies from person to person. But basically, a cubit is from your fingertips to your elbow. That's the short cubit. The long cubit is a cubit and a span. And that was easier to measure. You go and measure a cubit, and then you go over here. Anyhow, so 10 times 10 times 10 is a picture of the Holy of Holies, the very dwelling place of God where the Ark of the Covenant is. And so we notice something else. It says here in Revelation 14one they they're standing on Mount Zion. Now, we we have to go back and understand that the Jerusalem that is above is much more important than the Jerusalem that is below. And we've seen that in our studies and looking at Galatians. And he says that Jerusalem above is our mother. In other words, it's a picture of the true home of all believers, which ultimately is in heaven with the Lord himself. And then notice here that... They have God's name, that is, the name of the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, and his Father's name written on their foreheads. Now think about that for a moment. What immediately precedes chapter 14? It's chapter 13. And if you look at at that same page in verse 18, he says, this calls for wisdom. This is Revelation 13, 18. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast, for it is man's number. His number is 666. And if you go back above it, you see that the dragon, who is Satan's imitation of God the Father, and the beast, who is Satan's imitation of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the false prophet who is Satan's imitation of the Holy Spirit, they cause people not to be able to buy or sell unless they have the mark. And you see here, verse 16, Revelation 13, 16, he also forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. And I'll share more insights on that uh, probably in a month from the past. But the point I want to make is this. The followers of the false Christ, the beast, the imitation Jesus, they have a mark here or here. But can you see it? Can you identify it? I don't know. But you know what? I want to invite you today, if you have the mark on your forehead to the Lord's Supper, what is the mark on a believer? The mark on the believer is the waters of baptism. Baptism marks us, it signs and seals us as belonging to the Lord. Is everyone who is baptized truly saved? No. Are all those who've never been baptized truly lost? No. But baptism nevertheless is a sign and a seal of the righteousness of faith. Just as the Lord's Supper is a sign and seal of our participation in the Lord Jesus Christ. So here is the great contrast. Revelation 13 ends with the Antichrist, the beast, and his mark, and Revelation 14 begins with these 144,000 virgins who haven't defiled themselves that are faithful to the Lord of the covenant. And it's a very striking contrast, isn't it? We should not forget that. Now, um, as we go through this, uh, we, we discover something about worship in verse 2, uh, Revelation fourteen two. I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters, like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists harping their, playing their harps, and they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 which, who had been redeemed from the earth. So what does that mean? Well, let's try to explore that a little bit this morning. This is a new song. If you hold your hand there and go to the second page of your handout, uh, and you see there a verse, Revelation 5, 9, this is their song, Revelation 5, 9, and they sang a new song. You were worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So I want you to see something here. This new song that they're singing is a song that's reflected in Revelation 5.9. And people can't learn it except the 144,000. What does that mean? It means this. This book is a closed book. Until we have received the Holy Spirit. Because the things that are here are spiritually, capital S, discerned. And so, what's in view here is singing a new song. What do I mean by that? Well, there are three or four thoughts I want to share. First of all, I want to explain a little bit of my past. When I was in seminary, my wife and I discovered a sweet little church that wasn't terribly far away. And that church practiced the old traditional way of Presbyterian worship. Presbyterians did not have pianos, or organs, they had no instruments, and they also sang out of the book of Psalms exclusively. And so because I was drawn to that little group of people, and only one other seminary student attended that church, whereas the churches around the seminary was inundated, immersed with seminary students. My wife and I just enjoyed worshiping in Elkins Park at the Third Church of the Covenanters. And that goes back to the Scottish Reformation and how that the church had to go underground uh, when King uh, Charles I's son, Charles II, came to power. He severely persecuted, particularly the Presbyterians because they had signed a document called the Solemn League and Covenant. And so he persecuted them severely. And then he dies and his brother, James II, comes to power and he really persecuted them. And so then uh, Charles's sister, uh, who was married to King William of Orange, uh, a Dutchman, came and rescued the British Isles from these terrible persecutions and he defeated the forces of King James the second at the Battle of the Boyne in Northern Ireland in, in 1688. And so there came to be a settled church. The Church of Scotland was restored. The Church of England was restored. But there were some people who said, eh, this isn't good. They didn't renew the covenant, the national covenant. And so from that time in 1690 until 1714, this little group of people who said, we need to renew the Solemn League and Covenant came to be known as the Covenanters and they didn't even have a pastor until 1714. But they were sweet people. And they're still around today, and they have a college called Geneva College, and they have the, I believe it's the ninth oldest seminary in North America, the Reformed Presbyterian Seminary in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So we really like those folks. But then something happened. They allowed us to take Holy Communion. And someone questioned that. Well, how can they take Holy Communion if they're not in covenant with us in this covenant that was made so many years ago and so my wife and I who had experienced taking communion became excommunicated and that hurt us deeply we were put out of communion oh we were still welcome Bob and Sandy and by that time we had our little daughter Lydia who's married to a preacher and uh it was very painful, it was agonizing, because we loved those people. Small little church, we love them. But that church practiced closed communion. Not simply close communion, but closed communion. Unless you were a member of their denomination and had sworn to uphold no longer the Scottish uh, Solemn League and Covenant, but the covenant entered into, in 1871, Unless you did that, you couldn't take communion. And so I did something. I ended up joining that denomination, which was a foolish thing to do because I didn't agree with all their positions. In fact, that denomination had a position that you could not vote in elections because when you voted in an election, you were asking a person to affirm something that you couldn't affirm. And you know what cha- They changed their minds on that? It was in 1960 when a Roman Catholic was elected president. And if there was ever a denomination that was militantly anti-Roman Catholic, it was the Covenanters. So I'm not trying to, to put them down. I loved those people. They published things that I had written in their national magazine. I spoke in their conferences. All those things, but one day, I had to inform my presbytery that with malice aforethought, I deliberately broke an ordination vow. And that resulted in my becoming a Methodist janitor in the summer of 1975, which was a very wonderful experience. All right, with that background, what I'm trying to get at is I adopted a position of exclusive psalmody and if you if you read texts like Ephesians chapter 5 verses 18 and 19 and Colossians 3:16 it speaks about singing psalms and hymns and songs and their apologetic method was to say well if you look at the psalms in the Greek Septuagint you will find their songs there yes that's true and you'll find their hymns there and of course their psalms the word psalm actually means accompanied by guitar Really? Yes, a psalmos. You're strumming that that guitar. Uh, So, anyhow, after I left, and I was called by my congregation right the week after Labor Day to come to Alexandria, Louisiana, I was silent. And it really bothered me. What am I saying as I go through this story? What I'm saying is that we're compelled as we worship with other believers, to identify with them and not to stand off and, and be aloof. And so as I restudied the issue of exclusive psalmody, I changed my mind. Was my mind neutral in that? No, I had come to love my congregation in Alexandria and served that church for 40 years. And in my love for them, I wanted to be able to sing with them rather than keeping my mouth shut as we sang the hymns, unless we sang a psalm. And so as I studied, I want you to see in Revelation 5, 9, a very critical verse. What is the worship of heaven like? In the worship of heaven, they sing a new song. And that new song is this. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. That's about the Lord Jesus Christ. And I came to the conclusion and the conviction that the Psalms by themselves are unscriptural. That sounds very strong. Because if you do not Christianize them, And guess who Christianized the Psalms? Isaac Watts. He paraphrased the Psalms and included the name of Jesus. Jesus shall reign where the sun, paraphrase of uh, Psalm 72, and so on. Isaac Watts paraphrased the Psalms and made them speak Christianly. Do I love the Psalms? I love the Psalms. I read a Psalm every day. And I love the Psalms, and the Psalms speak to us in the profoundest way. The difficulty with exclusive psalmody is that it does not focus on the cross at all, it doesn't mention the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, we have to understand that the Psalms are pre Christian, and therefore they are part of the week and beggarly elements. They're part of the Old Testament, which according to the book of Hebrews, is not a perfect system. And because it was imperfect, it had to be replaced with a new covenant. So they they sing a new song. Now I want to throw out another idea. When you become a believer, when suddenly God opens your eyes to understand the truth, This book, which was a closed book and an obscure book with no real meaning and significance, even if you were an intellectual giant and studying it, you're missing something. But once the Lord opens your eyes to who he is, once you fall in love with the Lord Jesus Christ, and you pick up this book and you read, you're like St. Augustine. You remember Augustine's story. Augustine was a brilliant a brilliant philosopher, and he had searched for meaning all over the world. And one day he is in a courtyard, and he hears, he hears children singing a sing-song thing over the wall. And they were singing "Tola legge, Tola tolelege, which is Latin, take up and read. And he looked, and there was a book. And it fell open to the book of Romans, where it said, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. At that moment when Augustine picked up that book, the New Testament, opening to the book of Romans, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. At that moment, Augustine was converted. He became a believer in a moment of time. And suddenly his eyes are opened. Now what I want to say to you about singing a new song is this. When you become a believer... Things that seem to be obscure and meaningless and fruitless suddenly take on the meaning. So that hymns that you may have learned as a child, you may have memorized uh, when people used to sing in, in, in our public schools 60 or 70 years ago, suddenly those songs take on a whole new meaning. So for the believer to lift his voice and sing is to sing a new song. And so as we probably will continue this on next week, as we think about who these people are, if you look at the top of page 1928, they follow the lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among men and offered as first fruits to God and the lamb. No lie was found in their mouths for they are blameless. Let me speak for a moment about the Lord's Supper. Should you come to the Lord's Supper if you fell into sin yesterday? Think about it. Anybody here fall into sin yesterday? Hmm. I see that hand. No, I don't. (laughs) Here's the thing we have to remember. Each of us is more sinful than we want to be if we're a believer, and we're more sinful than we think we are because no one truly knows his or her own heart. Jeremiah said the heart is deceitful above everything else. Desperately wicked, who can know it? The Lord knows it. And so as we come to the Lord's Supper, I want you to remember one fundamental truth. You're blameless. If you're a believer, the righteousness of Christ has been put to your account, and your sins have been put to his account. This great exchange... You don't simply stand neutral before God, sin's forgiven. You stand with positive righteousness. And, and I want you to understand that if you're in Christ, you are entitled to come to the Lord's Supper. Now, the Lord's Supper is a powerful thing. It has healing impact. I'll never forget an event that happened in my congregation Years ago, it was at least 30 years ago, we had a man in the congregation who had had cirrhosis of the liver and he'd had a liver transplant and the drugs were not working. He's on all of these anti-rejection drugs with his new liver. And one night, we had a home group that met where we would have the Lord's Supper. And uh, as we're praying for his name was Paul, as we were praying for Paul, suddenly there was a a, a weird thing that happened. The preacher, who happened to be yours truly, began to pray. And we prayed, Lord, send the power of your Holy Spirit in this house now so that as Paul takes the cup of the Lord's Supper, it will heal his body. You know what happened? The door of the house blew open loudly, and as we shared a common cup, and as Paul took from the wine of the Lord's Supper, he was healed. He no longer had to be on rejection drugs. What I want to say is, I'm citing that as an experience that I was part of and that I witnessed, that there's healing in the cup. Healing in the cup. Why? Because that cup not only symbolizes but seals to us the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Christ shed his blood to undo the terrible works of Adam. In other words, God corrects his creation at the cross where Jesus bears our sins on himself and then gives to us his righteousness. And the bread speaks to us of our unity in Christ. And so I want to commend to you the bread and the wine. Commend to you the bread because in a few moments I will lift that loaf and I will say the words that Christ said at the Last Supper. This is my body. Do we believe superstitiously that somehow or another it ceases to be bread and then becomes literally in a, in a tooth and tongue swallowing way the actual literal physical body of Christ? No. But we do believe something. It is full of power. And that's why Paul warns the believers in Corinth not to take the the Lord's Supper carelessly, in a frivolous manner, to take it without reflection. God wants you and me to reflect today on our own lives. Where have I come short? What do I need to change? In the first communion service of a new year, 2024, what is the thing that I need to lay before God and say, "Lord, help me"? And as we examine ourselves, then we should eat. No one should stay away from the Lord's supper. We should eat, and we should eat knowing that is pregnant with power to change us in a mysterious way that no one, in my mind, has ever successfully explained. Christ is present in this meal. And we know that again because some people partook of the Lord's Supper in a careless way and ended up getting sick or even dying according to the text in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. But that same power is there for you and me to heal us, to draw us to Christ, and to draw us to one another because God, what God really wants of His church in the year 2024 is Is that all those who love Jesus would be one? All those who love Jesus would be one. And the loaf speaks to us of our unity in the Lord Jesus Christ and being identified with Him. And the cup speaks to us of His precious blood that was shed. So I want you to, I want to invite you this morning to take with me the Lord's Supper because it's the new covenant in His blood, and it's His blood of the new covenant that the cup contains, and you are welcome. We will never exclude a professing Christian from the Lord's Supper. How painful, how evil to exclude a professing Christian from the Lord's Supper. We don't simply, we we don't practice closed communion or even close communion, we practice open communion because the table should be open to every single human being who professes faith in Jesus Christ. Do you? Then examine yourself now as I pray. Lord, I pray that as we partake of the Lord's Supper, you would bless us, Lord, as we have come to sing a new song. Lord, a song all about the Lord Jesus and his redeeming work and how we've been purchased to God by him. And Lord, we also sing the Psalms as a new song because they have new meaning for us because the Lord Jesus Christ is the stone that the builders rejected and has become the head of the corner. Lord, in Psalm 118, we sing the Psalms, the Psalm 23, Lord, because you, Lord Jesus, are our shepherd who laid down your life for the sheep. Lord, we sing the first Psalm as the blessed or happy man, because in Christ we are blessed and happy. In Psalm 2, Because you have commanded the kings of the earth to bow their knees and submit to you and to kiss your son, Lord, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Lord, we come to you today with a new song in our hearts and delight in you. And thank you, Lord, that each of us here is part of that 144,000 virgins from all the tribes of Israel that we are. Redeemed, in Jesus' name, amen.